a tie. I know that's uh, <laughs> what a bunch of y'all were thinking, so I just want to go ahead and voice it in words. Uh, this is what happens when you give your wife full authority to dress you one weekend, and so, uh, men, you should be warned. Um, want to say, give a welcome to those of you at all of our campuses uh, that are joining us uh, this weekend, uh, West Club and North Durham and Cary and North Raleigh and Briar Creek South. Um, good to have everybody with us. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, while you're looking for that, I want, uh, I've got a, um, what I believe to be a pretty exciting announcement um, to make about the choir at the Summit Church. For those of you that don't know, um, the choir for uh, the last several years has been a very key part of our ministry here. Um, but one of the, the problems, uh, well actually problems not the right word, limitations if you will with um, the choir was that it really was only available to those who attended our Briar Creek campus on Sunday morning. So we had a number of people in our church that enjoyed being a part of that ministry or wanted to be a part of that ministry but could not because for whatever reason felt like their family, it would be better for them to be at a different campus. We had other people who felt like they should be at a different campus but didn't feel the freedom to go because of their commitment to the choir. Um, well, what we are doing now is rather than the choir being only for one campus, we are going to be building a choir from all campuses focused on a special event or on a series of events. So starting February 1st, every Wednesday for eight weeks consecutive, all right, for anybody that wants to be a part, the choir is going to be rehearsing for a concert of worship for the whole church on Friday, April the 6th, that is Good Friday, Okay. This is going to be the concert of concerts, uh, the kind of concert that only Chris Gaynor can pull off. Uh, that is what we will experience together. After that, they will disband, so to speak, until we um, do something like this again, Lord willing, in the fall. So for those of you that have not been able to be a part of the choir because you have been at another campus, or I know that some of you have not been able to do it because uh, you couldn't make the year-long commitment that the choir required, um, for those of you that have been in that category, this is your chance. Eight weeks leading up to a great ministry event for our city. Now, I know that there's a bunch of you. In fact, that's one of the, the things behind this. There's a lot of you um, who love to sing but were never able to be a part of, of that particular ministry. This is a perfect chance for you to recapture the glory of your Glee Club days, okay? Uh, I know that you're out there. Uh, especially you former choir members. We want uh, you to bring somebody with you. We need to pack this place out um, in a church of uh, between six and 7,000 people on the weekend. We have a large number of you that this is um, just the perfect ministry event for you to be involved with during the season. So come and check this out for, um, for this eight weeks. Anybody that's been a part of the choir in the past knows that one of the things that characterizes it is it, it, is, it is more than just a, a performance or an event. This is an, a pretty unbelievable, I would say one of the best um, discipleship and ministry um, opportunities at our church. That will continue. Um, it was the choir that led in our church's outreach to our city by adopting um, the first school we adopted. They've led in, in local um, uh, prison ministry outreach, and those kind of opportunities will continue. The choir is led by one of our most capable pastors and leaders, um, Chris Gaynor, um, who has been here for 25 years. Um, and during this next season of ministry, in addition to leading uh, this, is going to be mentoring a lot of our staff and leading um, in our prayer ministries here at the church. So I want you to take advantage of this. This is a, a, a much wider net, and uh, to those of you of all of our campuses, this is something very exciting to be a part of, and I would um, invite you to at least come out and check it out on the first one, uh, And because uh, I think it's, it's going to be an awesome thing there that we're going to lead up to on April 6th. You're like, well, I'm not really good at, at singing. That, that doesn't matter. Um, you just come, and we will put you in the back row and let you make a joyful noise into the back of somebody's head, uh, okay, away from the mic. 
Uh, Chris is not too excited, by the way, about that suggestion, um, but, uh, you know, because he looks at the outward person, but me and Jesus look at the heart, okay? So that's my um, statement about him. But anyway, we want you to be a part of that, and I want to make you uh, aware of it, and I want to do that personally. Um, you know, February 10th and 11th, I think you heard about this earlier in our service, we are going to be acknowledging or celebrating our 10th anniversary. It's kind of hard for me to believe that 10 years ago, that's how old the Summit Church is. We, we have the opportunity, by the way, to simultaneously celebrate our 50th anniversary and our 10th anniversary on the same weekend. Because it was 50 years ago in 1962 that this church was planted as Homestead Heights Baptist Church, and then 10 years ago that we became the Summit Church. And so to have that weekend where we can just reflect upon the goodness of God um, together, we got a lot of very special things planned. Uh, and so I want you to certainly make plans for you to be there. Uh, you ought to bring somebody, people maybe that have been a part of our church. Uh, that are not anymore, maybe because they live somewhere else, or maybe because they're here in the city, but they're mad at us. Um, tell them this is a great weekend to come back. We'll declare Amnesty Sunday, where you can just show back up, no questions asked. Uh, and uh, this is as close to a homecoming as we will ever have at the Summit Church. Uh, you, you grew up in a church at a homecoming, potluck dinners, ham, Dunkin' Donuts, Bojangle Chicken. I don't know if we'll have any of that stuff, but this is as close as we're going to come to that. So we want to make sure that you are aware of that, Okay. Um, as usual, I have finished my time filler to give you time to find the book of Jonah. I hope that you have it now. Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety to you, uh, making rather, you know, little comments along the way, and then I'm going to show you what I want us to do with it this weekend. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Jonah 3, verse 1. Here we go. Jonah 3, 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, came to Jonah. Read these next three words together with me, all of our campuses. You ready? The second time. All right, say that again. I'm going to read it, and then we come to that part, I want you to say it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Aren't you grateful for second chances with God? I know a lot of people who are, get very far from God, and they start to ask, even if they never verbalize it, they start to say, can I come back? Am I too far gone? You have not gone, far, gone farther than Tarshish or the belly of a whale. Right? And so, yes, you can come back. The word of the Lord comes to you again a second time. The gospel speaks to this in at least two different ways. First of all, Jesus Christ died for all of your sin, which means that he died to put away the guilt and the shame of it forever. Yes, your sin, your wandering may have been bad, but I guarantee you it does not compare to what Jesus went through to forgive you. So you can lose this question of have you done something so bad you can't, can't come back by looking into the sacrifice that Jesus made. All right, the other way the gospel addresses this is through the resurrection. We serve a God who not only died for our sin, we serve a God who was resurrected so that he could recreate our future. So that he could say to you what he says to all of us in the resurrection and that is behold, I make all things new. So yes, you can come back. He says, verse 2, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you're into deja vu, you'll recognize that is exactly what he said in chapter 1. You see, here's the thing about second chances with God. God always takes you right back to the place where you said no. And sometimes you want to overlook that, don't you? You and God had, had a little tiff. You had an argument. And you want to chalk it up now to an irreconcilable difference, but you feel bad about it. You don't want to be separated from God, so you just want to come back in and act like nothing ever happened. That's just not how it works. Right? God is always right. You are always wrong. You can't just ignore that place that you disobey God and leave it unresolved. Uh, one of my favorite episodes of Seinfeld, I know not all of you are Seinfeld fans, but enough of you that I can probably say this, is where George gets mad, blows up at his boss, storms out, leaves, remember, tells his boss off, then that weekend feels bad about it and says, you know, I, I, I just quit my job. I don't have another job. So he shows up on Monday back at the boardroom table like nothing ever happened. Right? Now, you just can't do that. You can't do, you can't do that with God. You go right back to the place that you said no, and that's where it begins. You repent there. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out as he went, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, get this picture, okay? Jonah has been in the belly of the fish for how long? For three days, that's right, with the gastric juices of this fish's stomach washing over him, which means he would have been bleached white, white hair glowing like an angel. That would have to have been a nice effect for a preacher, wouldn't you agree, Right? And he's got an eight-word message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Actually, in Hebrew, it's only five words. Yodei arba'im ben Nineveh yomei nepaket. 
That was it. That was the whole message, all of it. It didn't have points. It didn't rhyme. It didn't have funny illustrations. Five words, all he said. Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, and from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Here's a question. What, what made them believe like this? Jonah's message doesn't appear to be that persuasive. Right? Five words long. He doesn't even invite them to repent. Do you notice that? He didn't even tell them what to do. That's like number one rule of preaching. Always give people a way to respond. He doesn't tell them that. He just says, hey, you're going to be destroyed. So what made it so effective? We don't know. It's just that God sovereignly arranged the events that were going on in Nineveh, and he prepared their hearts. Some historians talk about unusual astronomical activity that was taking place and natural disasters that had occurred around Nineveh. All right, we, we don't know if that's contributing to, 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 to the way they're listening to this, but what is clear is that God's Spirit took these five words and made them seem so real and so urgent to these people that the whole city repented. Verse 7, and he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Interesting, man and beast, right? Put, 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 put sackcloth on the cows. Don't give them any food. Make them fast. You're like, well, what have they done wrong? Nothing. But what does a cow do when it's hungry? Are, 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 you, real, are you redneck enough to know this? It moves. That's what it does when it's hungry. Imagine you got all the cows in a city this big mooing all the time. It's contributing to this sense of mourning. Right, this wail that's going up from the city, same way with the sackcloth. That, it's not like God prefers that, you know, and then so you put that on to make him happy. It's, it's that represented the inner torment of their hearts. And let them, he says, call out mightily to God. You see, up until now, the Ninevites had boasted in being mighty in their army, mighty in their strength, mighty in their riches. Now they are mighty in humiliation and repentance. And let everyone, says the king, turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. He did not do it. Why? Because God overflows with compassion and mercy. God doesn't delight in judgment. Ezekiel says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God delights in mercy. He is like a father, Jonah would explain in chapter 4, that fills that word I taught you last week. Rehem, compassion for a broken child. When I'm angry at my kids, if I'm angry at them for something that they've done, when the moment I see that brokenness in them, that repentance, my heart just overwhelms them with mercy. I love this picture of God. Give God half a chance. Give God half a chance in your life and he would overwhelm you with mercy. All right. There's a lot of different directions we could take this passage. But I want to use this passage to reflect a little bit this weekend on the nature of how God uses you to work in people's lives. You see, there's, there's two or three different macro themes, if I could say it that way, that are going on in Jonah. And I've kind of pointed some out to you as we went, and I'll get to another one next week. All right, but one of the, the purposes of the book of Jonah, if you want to jot this down for your, your study notes later, is that, you know, one of Jonah's purposes is to show you how God pursues sinners. That's what I've explained to you. You were Jonah. That just like God worked in Jonah's life, he's working in your life. He puts a storm in your life so that you can not be paid back for your sin, so that he can bring you back from your sin. All right, so you're Jonah. That's, that's one way. Another purpose of the book of Jonah is to contrast the difference in God's heart for lost people and ours. Jonah wants to destroy his enemies. God wants to forgive them. Jonah cries out for revenge. God cries out for mercy. The book of Jonah was supposed to be an indictment on the religious people of Jonah's day. It was an indictment on Israel. This is how they felt about the people on the outside. Um, it's an indictment on religious people in every day who somehow take their relationship with God and have it contribute to a sense of pride rather than letting it overwhelm them with God's mercy to them so that they become generous and graceful to everybody that's around them. So, so Jesus, by the way, New Testament, would say that the people in Jonah's day were like the Pharisees. 
who didn't care at all about people on the outside, but were proud like Jonah was. It's, a, it's an indictment of the church in our day who somehow takes our relationship with God, lifts us up with pride, and doesn't lead us to this radical generosity to people that are on the outside. So it contrasts God's heart with, with, with our heart, and it, it gives us a picture of who the real Savior is, not us, but Jesus. As I explained, Jesus is the truer and better Jonah, right? Because Gina, Jesus is going to do everything that Jonah did, but he's going to do it in the right way. Jesus is our Jonah. Jesus comes to repent, except when he's thrown out into the storm, it's not because of his disobedience, because of ours. He, he calms God's wrath, the storm of God's wrath. He spends three days in the belly, not of the fish, but of the earth, not because of his disobedience, but because of ours, right? So it's given to contrast those two things. A third purpose of Jonah, which is what we're going to deal with this weekend, is to show you how God uses his people in the world. It's to show you how God uses his people in the world. God using you to bring people to himself is what we call, you ready, evangelism. Now, I know that word terrifies some of you. And some of you that normally don't come to church are like, see, this is why I don't come to church. Because you Christians are always talking about how to convert the rest of us, and I hate that. I, I understand. You should rest assured that that word makes most believers as nervous as it makes you. Okay, because most of them, some of them are socially awkward, but not all of them are socially awkward, and they know um, that there's a sense of this. In fact, I've heard um, of a definition of evangelism as two very nervous people talking to each other. Okay, one nervous because he's being talked to, the other being nervous because she's the one doing the talking. All right, most of us are paralyzed when it comes to evangelism because you're like, well, I don't know where to start. I wouldn't know what to say. You're terrified about saying something wrong. You're terrified about creating some unbelievably awkward, socially awkward moment, right? I, I understand that. I have been there. I have been in more socially awkward evangelism encounters than anybody in this room, I can assure you. Um, I've been in, in other cultures. I've been in socially awkward moments. Um, if, you've been, if you've been with me for 10 years, you've definitely heard me tell this, but I haven't told it in a while. Uh, I spent a couple years overseas uh, in Southeast Asia. After I'd been there for about six months, I was starting to get the basics of the language down because they didn't give me that much training when I went. I could say, hi, my name is J.D., where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. Um, that was the extent of my knowledge of their language. But I, after I was there for about six months, I was starting to get the basics down, and I was um, riding a bus with a, a guy that I was becoming friends with who spoke about as much English as I spoke his language. And so there's you know, not a great deal of deep you know, conversation going on, but we, we were able to talk to each other about what was you know, what was happening. Well, the place where I was, you weren't allowed to go in as a, a missionary. Um, in fact, the word for missionary and the word terrorist were the same word in their language, if that tells you anything. Um, so you didn't go in as that, and, and while you were very upfront about, you know, your love for Jesus, you just didn't you know, go in as a missionary. So um, we're, we're sitting on the bus on the way back, and there's a little commotion going up in the front of the bus, and most people were turning around and staring at me. That was nothing new, because everywhere I went, you know, people stared at the strange, you know, white guy. And, uh, and, and so there, there's this little commotion going on, and so my friend leans over, and he says this to me. He said, because I, I was reading my Bible, because it was like an hour-long trip, and I'd said everything I knew to say to this guy in his language, and uh, so I was reading my Bible, and, he, and he, says, he said, they see your Bible, and here's what he said, they think you are a missionary. Well, in my mind, it was code red. Right, I had been trained for this moment because, you know, if they discover I'm a missionary, then that's going to connect me to other people and it's just going to be bad. And the kingdom of God in Southeast Asia is going to come to a screeching halt. You know, so this is my moment to save the work of the kingdom of God everywhere. And so I was like, well, it's not, I mean, just because I read the Bible doesn't mean that I'm a, a missionary. I, I, I love Jesus. And I thought, you know what? The whole bus needs to hear this, not just him. So I stood up on the bus. I got everybody quiet as much as I could. And I said, I said, I said y'all see my Bible and you think that I am a missionary? But that's just not true, and I'm saying this in their language. I don't, actually, I don't know what I was saying in their language, but I was trying to say this in their language, that you think I'm a missionary, but that's just not true. Um, I'm, not, I'm just a person who loves Jesus Christ, and, and, and this is, you know, I talk to him through prayer, and he talks to me, and about this time, I'm thinking, this sounds really good, uh, you know, and I, I'm not on a roll, so I'm just preaching. I start for like 30 seconds or a minute. I'm preaching, and, I, and I'm like, in Jesus Christ, he died, he saved me, he wants to save you, and I hope that someday you'll read the Bible, and you'll come to discover who Jesus is. It's just deadly silent. That bus, I sit down, I'm like, boom, one for the kingdom of God right there. <laughs> My friend leans over to me with this really confused look on his face, and he says in broken English, he said, I say they see your Bible and they think it is a dictionary. Um, that had been his words, okay, to me. So I have been in socially awkward evangelism moments in front of every tribe and tongue, okay, 
Um, so I, I, I understand that. I understand that, 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 that reservation that you, that you have. But God uses normal people to do his work, not socially awkward people, normal people. Becoming an effective evangelist comes from believing two things, two very simple things, both of which you're going to see in this story. All right, here's number one. Number one, one of our pastors helped me see this, and I thought it was just so simple and so clear and so helpful. Number one, or letter A, salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from believing that salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2, 9. It's like I showed you in this text, Jonah's sermon was not even that impressive. Five words long. His heart wasn't even in it, Right? I mean, you know, he's not, he, he didn't pray that they would listen to this, and he didn't say it with tears. In fact, in anything, he was praying that they wouldn't listen. In chapter 4, you find out he's praying and basically say, hey, God, you know, I want you to shut their ears and close their hearts. I want them to totally reject this. His heart's not in it. He's a hypocrite. But God used it. Why? Because God is the one who works salvation. You see, the Bible teaches that repentance is something only God can work in our hearts. That's not something we can do. He's the one that creates hunger. He's the one that convinces people to believe. He's the one who arranges circumstances so that we want to know God. I'll give you a handful of verses. Jot down the reference. I'll put them on the screen. You write these down. You go back think about these. Study these. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No man can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It, means you, it doesn't mean you can't utter the words. It just means that nobody will, from their soul, confess the Lordship of Jesus unless the Spirit of God puts that in them. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So here's the question. What does that refer to? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. If you have your Greek New Testament open, and I know that almost all of you do, you will notice that that refers to the whole previous sentence. In other words, it's not just Jesus' death that is a gift to you. The faith to believe in that gift is also a gift to you. John chapter 1, verse 13, to as many as received him, John says, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. It's not something you inherited from your parents, it's not something they could teach you, it's not something I can stand up here by the will of the flesh and convince you of, God does it in you. John 6, 44, nobody comes to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That means that people can't come unless God draws them. And if God's drawing them, they'll come. Now, that might make your mind hurt, and it might raise some some questions, but it should also make you relax, because that means the weight is off of your shoulders. It's not on you to convince them. God does the drawing and the convincing and the persuading. You can give the finest presentation of the gospel ever, and if God is not working in their hearts, then what you said won't have the slightest effect. At the same time, you can give the lousiest presentation of the gospel. And if God is working in their hearts, like Jonah gave the lousiest presentation of the gospel ever, God will use it because salvation belongs to God. You know, I know this firsthand. There have been times that I have preached sermons, maybe here, maybe somewhere else. And like in the middle of the sermon, I'm like, this is the best sermon I've ever preached. And I can just feel it, man. I can feel the spirit of God just moving you, man. I'm like, the, my illustrations are on. I'm being funny. I, I tell stories, and people are got tears in their eyes. And I'm like, man, that was good. And then after it's over, just, you know, based on how you usually tell these things, nobody. It seems like nothing happened in people. Like, oh, it was kind of a funny story. But nothing happens in somebody's heart. There have been other times that I have preached, I mean, what I would really consider to be the worst sermons ever. I mean, halfway through it, I'm like, Lord, forgive me. I mean, I, I get to the end, and I want to pray like this. I'm like, Jesus, I, I felt like this a couple times here. Jesus, I'm sorry. Jesus, I know there were people that were thinking about becoming Christians up until now, and I have convinced them not to be a Christian. I, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian any longer, Jesus, after that sermon. And somebody comes up to me at the end of this, just overwhelmed with God's work in their life, and I can almost feel God laughing in heaven. He's like, ah, I just want to prove it's not you. It's not your persuasive word. It's not the will of flesh. It's me. I, salvation belongs to me. People aren't converted by my eloquent speech or the persuasive powers of your flesh. They're converted by the power of God. You see, at the end of the day, we're not dealing with skeptics who need to be persuaded. We're not dealing with bad people who need to be convinced to become good people. We're dealing with dead people who need to be raised to life. 
That's not something you can do. That's something only the power of God can do. It's like, I, I've referenced this before, but it's like that movie, The Princess Bride. You, you remember that old classic movie where you, know, you get the person, he's like, oh, he's dead. You can't, he's like, no, no, he's not dead. He's nearly dead. And they got the little thing and they, 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 you know, they do something to him because and, 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 he's only nearly dead. That, that category doesn't really exist. People who are outside of Christ are not like nearly dead. They're dead. And for somebody that is dead to come out of the grave, it takes a work of God, not because I stood up here and gave a sermon that was powerful, made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and told some funny stories and, and made you cry once. That's not what does it. It's the power of God, and sometimes he takes people like Jonah who speak the word of God even against their will and all their hypocrisy because salvation belongs to him. So in one sense, I want you to, uh, you got to interpret what I'm meaning the right way. In one sense, I want you to relax because the pressure is enough. It's not on you. Salvation belongs to whom? To God. Salvation belongs to God. Number two, or letter B. Faith comes only by hearing. Faith comes only by hearing. That's Romans 10, 17. Now, that's not obviously in Jonah, but, but you see it there in Jonah 2 or Jonah 3. God's instrument of life is his word. The word of God is not just information that God wants us to know. It's not commands. The word of God has a power in it. The word of God is a power. All, all kinds of analogies in the Bible for this. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says the word of God is like the ray of sunshine that brings life to the earth. 2 Timothy three sixteen says it's like the breath of God that creates life out of nothing. 1 Peter 1, 23 says it's like an imperishable seed of life that burst into fruit even in the most dead places. Isaiah 55 says that the word is like the rain that comes down from heaven and makes the earth sprout and blossom. The word of God is a healing rain on our hearts that brings life out of death. The word of God is not just information or commands. The word of God has in itself the power for you to do the very things that God is telling you to do. Think of it almost like when Jesus on earth would tell somebody who was lame, he would say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, that command coming from anybody else has no effect. I can walk up to anybody that's lame, and I can say it. I can, say, I can sing it. I can say it with funny stories. I can say it so it rhymes. I can say it and make the guy cry when I say it. He ain't moving. But Jesus' words, unadorned, just because he said them, have in themselves the power for that guy to obey that command. The word of God has in itself the power for us to obey, for the power for us to believe. So here is the important part for you. The word of God cannot do its work where people haven't heard it. Which means that our objective is to get the word of God into people's lives, to get them in the presence of it, because then, and only then, can God do his work. Please don't misunderstand me. Our objective is not their salvation. Why would I say that? You're like, I mean, I understand what you mean when you say that, because, that you know, we're not just trying to preach to everybody. We want to see them become Christians. But I, my objective, your objective, is not their salvation. Why? Because salvation belongs to God. And it's because people don't understand that they have this unbelievable, paralyzing burden on them that keeps them from doing the one thing that God would have them do. It didn't belong to me. The win in my column is when I am sharing the word of God with people. See? Isaiah says that God's word will not return to him void. It will accomplish all that he has purposed for it. You see, God is at work all around you, like he was in Nineveh. But there's a part that only you can do. You see, I think most people have, they live with this myth that God is like somehow magically just bringing people to church and bringing people to faith, and they just show up and come forward and, and get baptized, and that's just, how it, that's just how it works. No, God is at work all around you, but there's one thing he will only do through you, and that is speak the word of God. Give you kind of deep thought here. You ready for this? You study the book of Acts. The only beings who preach the gospel in Acts are humans. Now, Acts is filled with all kinds of crazy stories about God doing some pretty wild stuff. But the one thing that only a human being does is preach the gospel. And in fact, it's kind of like the way it's written is almost, it's, it's, if you've never seen this, this is big point trying to be made. I'll give you some examples. Acts chapter 8, three chapters right in a row. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, there's a guy that they call an Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And it says that he's reading, you traveling through the desert, and he's up in his little chariot or whatever, he's reading it, and he comes to the part in Isaiah 53 about you know, Jesus dying for sins, and he's like, I don't know what this means. Okay, so what God does 
is rather than like appearing as an angel to him and explaining to him what that means, he gets Peter, or excuse me, Philip from over in Samaria and he teleports him, all right, mind you, teleports him out into the desert so that Philip can, Philip's like, what am I doing here? He said, just hang on, just, just wait. Here comes the chariot. He hears the guy reading. He's like, oh, I know why I'm here. And he shares the word of God to him. Now, why would God, if, a God who could do anything, why would he even just like save Philip the trouble, let him stay there in Samaria, if he's going to go do all the magic stuff, why not just do it himself? Only a human being can do it. Acts chapter 10, jump to that one. There's a guy named Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier. He's been seeking God. There's not, something's not right in his life. He wants to know God. So he's like, God, I want to know you, et cetera, et cetera. So God appears to him as an angel in a dream and says, Cornelius, your prayers have come up to God. God wants you to know him too. That's good news. Right? And so what does the angel do? Does he go ahead and like explain to him what the gospel is? No. He says, I'll tell you what. I want you to go over and find a guy named Peter who's on the other side of the city, and I want you to get him to explain it to you. So meanwhile, other side of the city, Peter's up on top of the house where he's staying for you know, evening prayers, and as he's praying, he falls into a trance in this one of the oddest dreams ever recorded, a sheet falls out of the sky, and in the sheet are like all kinds of unclean animals, pigs and squirrels and dogs, and, and a voice says to Peter, rise, you know, kill and eat, and, and Peter's like, I don't want to eat that, it's unclean, and the voice says, I'm God, don't argue with me, and so Peter, you know, wakes up from his dream and trying to figure out what it means, what does this pigs in a blanket dream mean, okay, that's my name for it, <laughs> what does it mean, and, and, and just then somebody knocks at the door and he goes down and Cornelius says, hey, I had this angel show up and tell me I need to talk to you. And Peter's like, I had these pigs fall out of the sky. And somehow that thing has to do with you. And, 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 and he preaches the gospel to him. Why? Did God go to all that? Because a human being is the only one that can do it. In between those is Acts chapter 9. You know this story. Paul, Saul at this point, traveling down the Damascus Road, and right? his horse, God appears to him, knocks him off the horse, knocks him on his back. Jesus appears to him and says, Peter, I mean, whatever your name is, Saul, what are you doing? It's hard for you to kick against the, the pride of the Holy Spirit. And Saul's like, oh, I'm sorry, you know. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Well, see, Saul, you've got to understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to write that one day, all right? For the wages of sin is death. He doesn't do that. He says, go talk to Ananias. And Ananias shares the gospel with him. Why didn't Jesus just go ahead and close the deal? you got a guy on his back and you're standing there in the clouds. Go ahead and share the gospel. No. It's always got to be a human being that does it. Always. You will not find one illustration anywhere in the Bible where anybody but another human being actually shares the message of the gospel. The point that's being made dramatically is that the word of God has to be spoken through the lips of a human. But God is all around you doing the rest. See, if you would just open your eyes to those two facts, that salvation belongs to God and that faith only comes by hearing and hearing only by you, it would have the most profound effect on you. Believing those two things makes you into a bold, confident, and effective person who shares the word of Christ with others. I've seen so many illustrations of this through my life. Um, years ago, I, I had a part-time job as a, I worked in, in yard maintenance. And I worked with a group of guys that were just very, very rough, you know, just, and they curse like, I mean, like nobody's business. I got, I mean, I learned some new, this, they could creatively cuss. I'd never realized it was an art. You know, these guys, it was like, man, I need to write that down. That's totally foul, but that was, that was great. Right, so they would cuss all the time. This one guy who was the, the leader of it, I, I never even learned his real name. We called him Ivan because um, he looked like a big, I don't know where his ethnicity was from, but he looked like a big Russian guy. He's huge guy, and he just cursed. I mean, he could not speak a sentence without, you know, dropping all these foul words in it. And one day he got on a kick saying, like, the queen mother of all curse words, you know what I'm talking about? G, D, that one. And he just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, it's stuff coming out of his mouth about God, and I was provoked. And I was like, I was sitting there, and I was just, I mean, I was boiling the way that just the disrespect he was showing toward God. And finally, I felt like the Holy Spirit rage into my chest. And I turned to him, and I was like, I was like, Ivan, you need to shut your mouth. I was like, I put up with all this other stuff, and that didn't really bother me, honestly, all that much. But here you are blaspheming God, and one day you're going to stand before God, and one day you're going to look in his face, and you do not want to stand before him having treated him with the disrespect and having taken his name in vain the way that you do so casually. Then the Holy Spirit completely left me right at that moment, just all by myself. I'm out, you know, and I turned and I started to walk away, and he, I heard these big feet running. He comes and he says, what did you say to me? And I, I repeated the gist, but in much gentler tones of what I had shared with him. And, and he, says, he says, you know, he said, 
I've known that something is not right between me and God, but I just don't, I don't know, and, and I'm condensing a long conversation. He says, I, I haven't really known who to ask or where to start. And this led to this conversation that took place over several days um, where I kept talking to him about this. And I remember being in the midst of this thing, and he revealed to me that, that he had just been diagnosed with melanoma, skin cancer. He didn't know he was causing all this chaos in his life, and he and his girlfriend that he lived with were starting to ask these questions. And, and I, I remember sharing with him one afternoon, just talking to him, and there was this, not far from where we were, this huge accident where um, I don't think anybody ended up dying in it, but it was bad. And, and, and it, this, this truck had flipped over on its side, and there was a kid trapped um, on the end. And so we're all, there's two or three guys trying to lift the truck up. I mean, he goes tearing across this field. He comes out of this truck, and he hits it like just knocks that truck up on its, its side, just, he was a beast, and he, it just, it, it was this, this, this moment where, where he just, it was, you know, after seeing this kid, and it looked like he was dead, and he's just like, um, he, he, he was just overwhelmed with emotion, and he, we're standing there, we have to wait for the police to come, since we were witnesses of the accident, he's like, <laughs> he looks at me, he's like, he was like six, six, six or something, he said, he's like, hey, you think God's trying to speak to me? I was like, no, man, I think God's screaming at you. <laughs> I think it's probably time for you to listen it was very shortly thereafter that he, his girlfriend, trusted Christ. God is all at work around you. But see, there's a part that only you can do. It's speaking the word of God in that moment. God is. Salvation belongs to him. It's the part that he's given to you that only you can do. Does that make sense? I, I got more times than I can tell you where I was doing something, sharing Christ, and I ended up like, it ended up being for the purpose, not the person I was talking to, but somebody that was listening in. Now, I was on a bus trip one time, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and I was talking to this person next to me, and the conversation turns to the gospel. It was like an hour and a half trip, and man, I just was like, I was just going after this person, like, you know, because they kept arguing, and it was so cynical, and I was just explaining to them, and, and this, this person's heart was so hard, and they kept asking these snide comments and all these attacking things. At the end of like an hour and a half, the bus stopped, we are both getting ready to get off, I'm thinking like, you know, um, total failure. Uh, I stand up, and the girl behind us stands up. She's got big tears in her eyes, and she says, that was awesome. <laughs> I call that ricochet evangelism, where <laughs> God's word bounces off one hard heart and like goes into a, another one this morning. I, I don't know how it all works. I just know that there is a role that God has given to you, see. And if you understand that, it should lead you to do two things constantly, all right? This is what our small groups are studying to equip themselves to know better how to do. Number one, to get the word of God into people's hands. Now, what, 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 what do I mean by that? I, am I talking about the whole, remember that first week I talked about tracks, you know, where you like leave random gospel pamphlets in restrooms and with the, you know, to, to, to waitresses. You're like, hey, here's a tip, try Jesus, and it's a fake $10. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the word of God in the context of a relationship where you speak the word of God to people in the context of relationship because that's always how you see it. You put the word of God in their hands and then you guide them. All right, I'm going to give you a really simple idea to help you with this. All right, listen, make a list of verses for this person, verses that are very significant to you. Verses that speak, verses about salvation. Make a list of them. Um, uh, verses that you're learning in this Jesus in my place study you're doing in your small groups right? And then give them to them. And say, here's a list. What I want you to do is read two to three of them a day. And I want you to write out in one sentence what you think it means, and then write out what it means to you. What does it mean, and then what is it saying to you? And then, in another week, we'll come back together and we'll discuss some of these verses. Get them in the presence of the Word of God and let God's Word do the work. On my blog this week, on our, our Equip blog, I, I will make available to you a two or three lists of pre-done verses. I didn't write these, another one of our pastors did, but two or three kind of lists of pre-done verses that give you the instructions of this. And just say, hey, I want you to spend some time in the Bible. You talk about these things and, and, and you read these things and let God speak to them. Just get them in the Bible. Sometimes you, you carry this like weight of like, oh, I've got to like, I've got to be ready to answer all the questions. You don't. When I was in Southeast Asia, I brought this up earlier, when I was in Southeast Asia, I had this like, I didn't do a very good job. Um, when I was there, because I was always like feeling like like I would get in the conversation with these Muslims about the gospel, and I felt like I had to like lay out the plan of salvation and convert them and all that kind of stuff, and didn't see a lot of, of fruit. Meanwhile, on the other side of the planet, um, one of my best friends, who's one of our elders now, Bruce Ashford, who's at our Saturday campus, one of our elders there, um, was also living among Muslims, and he was taking a different approach. 
And that was, he just invited them to study the Bible with him. So he made a list of 20 different stories in the Bible that he thought were significant. And they would go through and they would study them. He said, I remember when one of these Bible studies that had started, there were eight Muslims in it when all eight of them together trusted Christ. Because the word of God spoke to them. I carried around this kind of like, hey, I've got to be the answer man. I'm like, I got my Wayne Grudem systematic theology, and I've got my Tim Kelly. He wasn't, well, he wasn't really that popular yet, but I got somebody's apologetic book here, and I'm like, just bring it. Just throw your objection in the air, and I will gun that thing out of the air. And I, I, mean, I, was, I was pretty good at it, but that's just not how it works. You, you get them in the presence of God's word. That's the win. The win is you get them in the presence, and I'm going to give you that tool. It'll be on my blog as of tomorrow afternoon. It'll be there, and you can, 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 can use that, Okay. So if you understand that salvation, oh, by the way, here's one other thing on that. You can just bring them here. Bring them here with you to our church. One of the goals that I have is to say things sometimes in the service that are confusing so that you can invite them to go out to dinner afterwards and you pay and you can say, hey, is there anything that came up tonight that we could, or this, you know, this morning that we could talk about? Yeah, I even say that sometimes in the service. I'm like, the person that brought you today will take you out, pay for your lunch, pay for your dinner, and they will explain to you everything that I left foggy. Right, that's kind of, that, that's the purpose of it. Is get them in the presence of the word of God, bring them here, and then, and then you do that, okay? So if you understand that salvation belongs to God, faith comes only by hearing, you're gonna get them in the presence of the word of God. The second thing that you will do is you will pray like crazy. Pray like crazy. If salvation belongs to God, then prayer, asking God to do what only God can do, should be our greatest resource. Now here, Jonah's not an example for us. Again, Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevites' salvation. In fact, he was praying against it. Jonah wasn't praying for the Ninevites, get this, but Jesus was. You know how I know that? Because when Jesus was on the cross, what did he say over and over again? Father, forgive them. By the way, John Stott says that in Greek, it's written in the clause, which means that he repeated that. It wasn't one, he didn't say, Father, forgive them one time. He prayed it over and over and over and over again. Jesus prayed for the Ninevites. And what you essentially do when you pray is you join your faith to Jesus' faith. That's pretty good company to be in. Father, I'm just praying the same thing Jesus prayed. I've described it before like a laser. You know how a laser works? So you got like a light wave, and then you amplify it by adding another light wave. Like when waves are going the opposite ways, they cancel each other out. That's how noise-canceling headphones work. Okay, science lesson. All right, but when they, you stack them on top, they intensify. Look at Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them, as one wave and then what God is allowing you to do is join your wave to his, and that becomes a laser of God's power into that person's life. Father, forgive them. You, you are joining that God, let them see. God, do what only you can do. By the way, you want motivation to pray? You realize that when Jesus prayed that, Father, forgive them, he was praying for you. And Because he prayed for you, that gives you the ability to pray for the Ninevites. Jonah didn't think he needed prayer. Jonah thought he was the prophet. If he'd have understood that Jesus had prayed for him, that would have created in his heart the love to pray for Nineveh. All right? So here's a question. How many people are you praying for right now to be brought into the kingdom? Or here's a question. Ready for this? If God answered right now in one fell swoop, if God answered every prayer you prayed last week, would anybody new be in the kingdom? If like in one fell swoop, God said, I'm going to answer every single prayer, prayer you prayed last week, would anybody new be in the kingdom? I say this gently, but if not, shame on you. What, what are you doing? Who, are you, what, who is Jesus to you? What is the gospel to you? If you understand what Jesus has saved you from, then you understand that what he saved you to is for you to preach to people that were in the same way that you were. When I say preach, I don't mean what I do. I mean just sharing God's word to them. My whole point is that God is all at work around you. God wanted to. He could save the Ninevites. The obstacle was Jonah. God wants to, and he can, save people all around you. For many of us, the obstacle is us. We've just never shown up and given the word of God to them. Now, before I close this really quickly, I want to deal with one objection. Because some of you have the opposite problem of what I'm saying. You're like, well, I've been giving this person the word, and they're totally closed. Nobody listens to me. What does that mean? All right, all right follow me. Ready? When you have a time of fruitlessness in your life, you can have one of three reactions to it. One of them is bad, two of them are good. And I'll even, we'll put them up here for you, and I'm even put bad beside one of them and good beside two, just so there's no confusion. All right, one of them is self-doubt. Say with me, okay? You're sharing with somebody, they're not listening, and so what do you conclude? There's something wrong with me. 
my Christianity, something God's mightily displeased with in me, and that's why I can't be fruitful. You ever felt that? I have. There are times I've been struggling and I thought, I'm spiritually sterile. Of course, the gospel is that there was something wrong with you. And you are spiritually sterile. And God was mightily displeased with you. And God gives his grace to those who acknowledge that. So of course you're spiritually impotent. That's gospel 101. And when you get gospel 101, you can understand that the gospel is for those who embrace that God gives them his power, not as a gift. I mean, excuse me, not as something they earn, but as a gift. In fact, only those who are spiritually sterile will have access to the mighty power of God. Those who believe they have internal spiritual power will end up impotent. So that's one, self-doubt. Here's the second thing it can lead you to. It can lead you to make more demands on God's grace. That's good. Now, I use that word demands on purpose, even though I know it's going to make some of you uncomfortable. Because you're like, well, we shouldn't be demanding anything of God. Let me tell you this. Some of the greatest movements of God came from a bold presumption on God's grace. Somebody saying, God, don't you care? I've told you before, Charles Spurgeon had this way of praying that kind of creeped people out around him. Because he'd be like, God, don't you care about this situation? I care about it. I know you care about it because you're a love more loving father than I am. How can you watch this and not do something? That's presumption. And that's the kind of thing Jesus actually really likes. He said the kingdom of heaven is taken by force. By people who understand these things and ask for them. Think of Jacob wrestling with God. Remember this, Genesis, where he holds God down, the angel down, and says, I won't let you go until you bless me? That sounds sacrilegious, but God was pleased with it. Moses, I won't go up unless you go with me. Luke chapter 8, verse 44, the woman who comes up and presumptuously grabs a hold of Jesus' garment, even though she was ceremonially unclean, because she said, I know how loving and compassionate he is. The woman who, you know, goes up to Jesus and says, hey, come heal my daughter. He's like, I can't, you're a Gentile, and it's not right to take the bread that was intended for children and give it to dogs. I was like, dang, did she just call her a dog? You know, I've read scholars, by the way, who are like, oh, no, no, what he meant there was little puppy. Okay, yeah, but he still called her a dog. Even if it's a little cute little dog, it's still a dog. But she didn't, she didn't blame because she says, yeah, but even the dogs get to eat what falls off the master's table. In other words, there's so much grace on your table, Jesus, that there's enough even for a dog like me. You understand the depth of God's grace and you make demands on it. Luke, 8, uh, Luke 18, Jesus compares prayer to an annoying widow who won't let the judge go until he gives her what she wants. These are the metaphors Jesus chose for prayer. I read this story this week. You, ever, you know who Tony Evans is? African-American pastor out in Dallas. Um, fantastic speaker. Was doing a, um, this big rally, uh, or big evangelistic meeting, whatever, down in South Carolina. It was open air. Just, you know, out like, think Durham Bulls Athletic Park or something like that. There was several thousand people there. Um, right before they're getting ready to start, these huge rain clouds come billowing in. And it's raining, and the people on the news are like, it's 100% chance of rain. So all the pastors that are part of this get together, and they all start praying. And Tony Evans said, everybody was praying these nice little kind of polite, you know, God, we want your will, and God, you can do what you want kind of, you know, prayers and everything. And it was all, you know, theologically correct, and they're going around. He said, this woman, he gives her the name Linda. I don't know if it's a real name, but he said, he said, I'll never forget. She stood up, and she said this right, with all these pastors in the room. She says, Lord, thousands have gathered to hear the good news about your son. It would be a shame on your name for us to have all these unbelievers go without the gospel when you control the weather, after all, and you don't stop it. In the name of Jesus Christ, address this storm. And that ended the prayer meeting. <laughs> Everybody goes out, takes their places under the dark sky. The leader of the crusade gets up, tells people, it's like, we'll go as long as we can. Everybody's on stage, all these pastors, all these umbrellas start opening up because the, 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 the rain's coming. This woman, Linda, sat on the stage, and she's like, uh-uh, I'm not putting up an umbrella. You see, he said it was one of the most bizarre things he'd ever seen. He said this huge storm it comes right over to where they are. He said it literally split in two and went to the right and to the left. He said not a drop of rain touched anybody. He said, now, why was it that she prayed like that? Why was it that God heard her prayer? See, it's because there was a shameless boldness in it. Because she understood who Jesus is and what he was up to. Prayer, you see, is not overcoming God's reluctance. Prayer is laying hold of God's willingness. The floods of salvation come when you presume upon the compassion of God. When you hold up God's compassion in front of his face. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus, I know how compassionate you are. Intervene. Here's the last thing, little letter C. Third, third, this is also a good response. Wait upon God. Some of the greatest movements 
of God happened after somebody labored for years with no fruit. Adoniram Judson, for whom I named my son, first American missionary, was in Burma for seven years. Now Myanmar, but at that time it was called Burma, for seven years. Not a single convert. He said, but after he labored, he kept holding this up in front of God's face and said, God, you care about these people. Conversions, he said, came like rain. So don't give up. There's nothing wrong with you the gospel doesn't address. In Christ, there's nothing you could do to make God love you anymore, nothing he could do could do that would earn his power anymore. The gospel is that God cares for people. Presume upon that and ask God because salvation belongs to God and faith comes only by hearing. Y'all, the bottom line is this. Jonah's what stood in the way of Nineveh's forgiveness. Their sin was not the obstacle. Jonah's failure to get them what the word of God was. I told you Jonah 2.8 was a key verse in Jonah. You remember this? Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. From Jonah 3, what you see is those who cling to worthless idols forfeit not only their own grace, they also forfeit grace that could have been other people's too. Who is there in your life that is not experiencing the grace of God, not because God's not willing or able, but because you have never simply spoken the word of God to them. You've never put them in a place for God to be able to take five words and open their heart. Salvation belongs to God. Faith comes only by hearing. That's where you are. If you understand that, you should pray like crazy and get the word of God. At all of our campuses, if you would, why don't you bow your heads with me? All of our campuses. Here's what we're going to do. Our worship pastors are going to come. Leaders. Campus pastors. The next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what this means for us in terms of what we do. But for now, I want us to apply this by just going as a church in front of God. And God, work in us, save through us. I think it's great for us to begin this year, 2012, January, presuming upon God's grace. Who is there in your family? Who is there in our city? And our church grew about 26% last year. Over 1,000 new people came to our church last year. You know how many people there are in Raleigh-Durham that are lost? Who in your life, or who has God put on your heart that his word has not come to? And can we just go intercede at all of our campuses and pray like crazy right now? I'm going to invite our campus pastors to come. We're going to enter into this time. Let's spend it pleading before the throne of God.